Welcome to Demand Side Economics. I am Alan Harvey and this is a Demand Side Relay. That came out easy for Wednesday, March 19, 2014. Things are popping at my new gig as Director of Idea Economics. Check it out at ideaeconomics.org. Get on the mailing list for the email explanations coming out over the next week by giving me your address, email address at demandside at live.com. The mission of Idea Economics is to reform economics, to rescue the society from bad economics. We don't do it without you. There is no example of an economics reforming itself from within, of the scholarly debate leading to a more coherent theory and practice. The only successful reform was the Keynesian revolution of the 1930s, when the economy fell apart and the pedants were rejected out of hand. People looked around, saw it was not working, saw a profession that claimed it was working and just needed more time, felt the rise of Stalinism and Hitler, and looked for an alternative. The alternative was at hand with Keynes and intuitive with the New Deal. This is the place you and I find ourselves, needing to prepare the alternative. In our case, in the modern world, it must be a widespread understanding of how things actually work, confirmed by how it lets us make sense and predict. The material is not difficult. Endogenous money, dynamic process, demand trumping supply, it may sound daunting, but anybody with a high school education can get the basics. It becomes more difficult, actually, the more you have to unlearn. Those who are now coming to the field and have not had the nonsense inculcated in them are a step, or several, ahead of those who are trained. When the time comes, and it is already upon us, when people look around for the alternative, it has to be at hand in people's understanding. It cannot be off at IDEA or INET or even one or another national government policy office. That is not the way the modern, interconnected, chaotic world works. Even what progress has been made in the academic debate today has been done only because of the exigencies of history. What is being done is not working. Monetary policy was going to save the day in 08. The Fed will do whatever it takes, was the calm assurance. The Fed did whatever, but it didn't take. The biggest transfer of wealth to the already wealthy in history took place. And a trillion dollar per year buy-up of financial assets took place. But it yielded only a buoyant market and a recovery, air quotes, that is a matter of statistical semantics. Stagnation, instability, social unrest continue and increase. We in the United States are, in fact, somewhat insulated, not by good economics, but by our dollar being the favorite currency of the moment. So today's podcast is a test. Without interruption, we bring you the relay of a Bloomberg interview of S&P's chief global economist, Paul Sheard. Today's test, why is this guy wrong except on three narrow points? Paul Sheerid 
is uh, uh, leading that operation. Paul Sherrod is their chief economist, of course, with years on the Japan Watch for Lehman Brothers and others. Paul, good morning. How important was this speech by Vladimir Putin within the geopolitics and the geoeconomics that you cover? Well, obviously, Tom, the, the developments in uh, in the Ukraine uh, and uh, in the Crimea in particular, <clears throat> with Russia are very much... Uh, Front and center of those geopolitical developments is, uh, you know, is a very important focal point for the global markets at the moment. Um, you know, when, when it's very hard to say how that's all going to play out, but um, we don't really see it at the moment sort of moving the dial, uh, moving the, the needle on our global growth outlook. But uh, certainly, uh, you know, it's unsettling to have that sort of geo- uh, geopolitical risk. Your U.S. headline is a recovery postponed, not canceled. Can you say the same about Europe and particularly Germany and East? Can that be a recovery canceled? Well, I think things would, have, you know, for the for the situation in the Ukraine to really, um, you know, sh- shift the whole course of the uh, eurozone uh, economic trajectory. You know, I think you'd, it would have to uh, really seriously spin out of control from here. Um, we're looking for a recovery in the eurozone and expansion of around about one percent this year. A little bit more next year. Uh, that still would leave the level of GDP uh, just barely getting back to where it was before the financial crisis. So a recovery does appear to be underway, driven particularly, obviously, by Germany. Um, but the periphery seems to have stabilized and uh, should edge up a little bit this year and next as well. Where is your point on the euro where your script changes? I mean, there's been a euro weak consensus that's been wrong, wrong, wrong for 18 months, 139.29 on a daily basis, new strength. Is 140 critical? Is it 142? Where it begins to change the story. I, I don't you know, I don't think there's ever just one particular number for, for, for exchange rates, um, particularly given that uh, for most of the central banks, particularly uh, the DCB and the Fed, central banks like that, uh, they're not targeting the exchange rate per se. But I think the critical variable with the euro will be uh, the ECB. Um, there have been some comments from Mr. Draghi recently uh, a little bit uh, you know, indicating some concern about the uh, the pressures that the uh, the euro are putting on uh, inflation, which is downward, uh, to an uncomfortable position. Uh, and the ECB has uh, really been the laggard among major central banks. Um, so you know, there's a possibility, I think, that uh, that the ECB does come out swinging at some point, um, but it will be with a delayed reaction. Uh, they do have uh, they do take yeah. a little bit longer to get <clears throat> to a point of. Uh, uh, of, uh, of action. Well, to bring it over to the to the United States, does Janet Yellen have a delayed reaction? I mean, I'm hearing today's meeting and the, the news conference and all that, that it will be a non-event. Do you buy that idea? Well, I wouldn't call it a, a, a non-event. I mean, uh, obviously, monetary policy uh, over here in the U.S. is on a sort of semi-autopilot at the moment with the $10 billion uh, per meeting uh, taper. That should continue at this meeting. But this is uh, Fed Chair Yellen's uh, first uh, uh, s- s- meeting at the helm. Uh, it's historic in that sense. We have the uh, economic projections will come out, and there'll be a press conference as well. So a lot to focus on here. Um, but the key uh, word, I think, for this meeting, Tom, is going to be forward guidance. Um, the Fed, I think, is quite likely at this meeting to make some refinements to its forward guidance, uh, particularly around the federal funds rate uh, staying close to zero. It's in a little bit of an uncomfortable uh, no-man's land at the moment, having put in the December statement a kind of place <coughs> marker that rates would stay close to zero uh, you know, for a, 
a considerable time, or for well past the time, was the wording they used, that the unemployment rate declines below 6.5%. So they've sort of gone away from the threshold, yeah. uh, numerical, back to something that looks a little bit more like a calendar-based or temporal-based uh, forward guidance. And I think we're going to see a change in that. I, I, but, but this is critical, and I want to come back and talk about this with Paul Sherrod, folks. Macroeconomic Advisors in St. Louis has a run rate of this quarter GDP of 1.5%. I've never, am I wrong, Paul? I've never heard of a central bank that goes restrictive on a sub 2% economy. Well, I think the, the key factor there, Tom, uh, you know, is, is the weather. I mean, there's, there's been extraordinary weather in the uh, U.S., uh, particularly on the East Coast, but uh, not, re- not restricted to that, which has been prolonged and very harsh and has definitely put a dent in uh, economic activity. I think the Fed will, will tend to look through that and uh, look at the trend in the economy, uh, and the trend does look, uh, look pretty good, particularly mm-hmm. one factor that's much more beneficial yeah. this year than last year, of course, is the fiscal uh, headwinds, which uh, have really tapered off a lot. Paul, there's the authority on inflation. Why do you guys say there's no inflation when John Tucker says, forget about it, I feel it at the grocery store? Tom, we're obviously going to different grocery stores, aren't we? No, no, seriously. You know, when economists and central bankers talk about inflation, of course, they're looking at an overall index which uh, puts together, you know, the, the, uh, in the U.S. it would be the, the uh, personal uh, consumer uh, expenditure uh, index, consumer price index typically in, in most countries. Right. Everything's in that basket. And, and of course... Certain, uh, certain items in that basket may be going up uh, and hitting you at the uh, supermarket checkout, but uh, other things such as uh, electronics, computers, um, a lot of mobile phone services, etc., may be going down, and, and it all sort of nets out. But the interesting uh, thing has been that actually uh, overall inflation, when you add it all together, has actually been uh, worryingly low um, in the U.S. in the last few months and also in Europe. So that's given uh, central banks an additional thing to uh, scratch their heads about. Would you please explain why the Hawks, let's call Philadelphia, Placer, Lacquer, Richmond, Fisher, Texas, and many others listening. Would you explain why the Hawks are worried about inflation if I'm seeing a core CPI of 1.6%? That that would have been a victory lap over the last 30 years, wouldn't it? Yes, and the, the measure that the Fed targets is actually lower than that. The, uh, the PCE is down around 1.1%. Um, well, I think the, in a nutshell, what, the, what those folks are really kind of concerned about is the, is the context, the quantitative easing that the Fed has done. Now, obviously, they've been doing it in, the, in response to uh, uh, the financial crisis and the Great Recession, but uh, the Fed has, of course, expanded its balance sheet dramatically. It's now about 360% bigger than it was at the time of the financial crisis. Now, normally, a central bank doesn't really expand its balance sheet very much, maybe 3 4 5% per year. So, you know, if you print a lot of money, uh, it leads to inflation. That's the kind of uh, idea that I think a lot of people have in their heads. Fortunately, it's not quite that simple. Uh, and I think the Fed can uh, actually, when the time comes, uh, drain or withdraw that liquidity from the system without triggering inflation. But I think people with a more monetarist background, uh, that's the thing that they worry about most. Where is all this liquidity ultimately going to go to? Uh, and it could it go into inflation? Where will it go to if we, if we basically say that a collective set of theories identified with Milton Friedman of Chicago, monetarism, Bill Poole of the St. Louis Fed, identified with that theory, it was maybe refuted, debunked, whatever you want to call it, uh, 20 years ago. Is it back or is it amended? I think it's very much amended. I think that many... Uh 
central bankers, uh, and I think the Fed got this pretty early on, kind of understood that uh, central banks could uh, expand their balance sheets, acquiring assets financed by creating uh, reserves in the banking system, and those reserves would not automatically multiply into massive credit creation the way that the textbooks uh, would tell the story. You know, at the end of the day, uh, Tom, you really do need demand for funds for banks to be able yeah. to expand their balance sheets. And of course, we've coming out of the greatest financial crisis and, de- and, and leveraging cycle, uh, perhaps since the Great Depression. Uh, this has been uh, a situation, obviously, where well, people have not been rushing to, uh, to banks to borrow money. If we equate demand for funds, and if we take out the plutocracy of huge corporations making huge profits and building up huge cash levels, and they can borrow money at 1% or whatever the absurdly low uh, yield is, everybody else, that implies they have no demand. Correct. This has really been a secular period, the last you know, five or six years, where the private sector, households and corporates, and particularly in this country, uh, households, have been rebuilding their balance sheets after a credit binge. So they've been trying to rebuild their net savings. And that means that somebody has to offset that and absorb those net savings. And that's really only two places. The rest of the world, uh, the U.S. improving its current account deficit, borrowing less from the rest of the world, and it's done that. But the other party is the government, and that's really been the driving force Mm -hmm. behind uh, the budget deficits in the last few years, particularly in the first two or three (laughs) years after the crisis. Somebody had to go out and borrow money because the private sector didn't want to do that. Paul shared with us, folks. We like to keep the nuances of all of our guests in place. When Paul Sherrod is with you, you must speak on Japan. In our final minutes, Paul, Abinomics, is it working? I think so far it is working, and particularly at the Bank of Japan. Uh, you know, it was a major, major shift, Tom, uh, in March of last year when the new governor took over and really went from uh, saying... Uh, under the previous governor, no, we can't, no, we won't end deflation to yes, we can, yes, we will. Uh, and that's off to a good start. But the jury is still out, uh, particularly because we're just about to go into this uh, fiscal tightening uh, episode in Japan with the consumption tax going up uh, in April. So the Bank of Japan may have to put its foot one more time uh, on the monetary accelerator uh, to really make sure that uh, monetary policy does its job in lifting this economy out of what has been a 15 to 20 year is, is there a len? Is there a yen level, a weaker yen, that makes Abinomics work? When you plug in your Excel spreadsheet, where is that yen level that allows Mr. Abe to change Japan? Well, I think it's probably it's hard to put a number on it, but I think it's probably a little bit lower than it, it is at the moment. Um, the yen uh, did go to about seventy-five to the dollar, and then it's come all the way back to one hundred. Uh, but at this level, it probably needs one more push, uh, again, yeah. one more uh, slamming on the uh, monetary accelerator and, and getting that yen level down. You know, 110, 115 maybe is, is I think, a, yeah. a range that a lot of market I, participants have in mind. I, I wish I could be as sanguine as you are about you, you, do, you have a currency move that solves problems. Paul Sherrod, thank you so much. Answers to the test coming in history. This is Alan Harvey from the demand side and ideaeconomics.org.